Would you please head back to your seats? That would be great. It's great to see everyone here. week we started a sermon series looking at, at what Jesus summarized in his greatest commandment in Mark chapter 12, um, what we call the Ten Commandments, which is actually literally later on in Exodus and Exodus chapter 34, the Bible actually gives us a name for those Ten Commandments. Um, this literally, literally, if you take the literal translation, it's the Ten Words, and that's where I kind of get the, the title for the series, but the Ten Commandments is good too. And what our hope is for this series is to see if these commandments are still relevant for us today. I mean, they're 6,000 years old or so. Um, how are they really worth following still? Um, so what can God speak to us about um, in the commands um, even today? Um, as we usually do last week, we're trying, in trying to understand the passage of Scripture, we took some time to look at the context of the Ten Commandments um, what was actually happening behind the text that we see in the passage in, in Exodus chapter 20. Um, and at the, at the point that God is giving the Israelites these commands, if you remember from last week, these people knew, they knew God. And how did they knew, know him? They knew him as the one who graciously saved them from slavery to Egypt. That's how they knew, that, knew him, right? And that was actually enough for them to actually trust him with their very lives. Um, that he was good and faithful. But actually, as we look at this situation, um, we actually get a broader view of what God is doing because we get to see their whole story, not just their short history um, at, in Egypt, but what, what has been happening all along the way. And we found that God was being gracious and, and loving to them, taking care of these Israelites for generations upon generations upon generations, right? Working to help them even before they acknowledged who he was and what he was doing, and they, before he even asked for help, he was already at work. Um, we can see this amazingly gracious and faithful God helping through the times of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and into Joseph's time period, and all, these were all their forefathers. Um, there's this long, long track record of God being good and faithful to them, right? To the point, really, where... They, they recognize, and we recognize, as we look at these stories, that he is faithful. He is good, right? That's who, part of who he is. Have we found that to be true in our own lives, that God is faithful? And now in Exodus 20, um, this redeeming, this rescuing God wants to make a covenant with these people. It's actually more like a marriage ceremony. Everyone, both sides kind of making um, their, their promises to each other that he would be their God and they would be his people. That's the context of the Ten Commandments. And he begins by telling them again who he is, their God, their Redeemer, and someone that they've already known, right? And then, then he offers them this first commandment, the first expectation of the people who would have him be their God. We saw that in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. God says, I'm the Lord your God. He's telling them who, who he is, who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So if we want this 
good and faithful and loving God to be um, our God, we have to, like the Israelites did, we have to choose to have God as our only God. That's the first commandment, right? Now, the Israelites for the last 400 years have lived in Egypt, and they all, really, all they really know is the Egyptian religious system, right? And the Egyptian system of religion was very polytheistic. They believed in all sorts of different gods. And that's why this command is really relevant to these Israelites, right? God had to show them that there was a better way, show them that there was a new way, um, a new faith, a new trusting in God. Um, but is this commandment relevant to us today? I mean, all we know is one God, right? We don't know any other gods. So why would we have to follow this command? We would automatically follow this command, right? Well, it really doesn't take much investigating into human history uh, to realize that we, and I'm speaking generally to all of humanity over the last thousands of years, <laughs> we have been and always will be a God-starved people. It is almost as if we humans were designed to always have this kind of God, um, God desire in our life, right? We have this hole um, that only the creator of the universe can fill. We've talked about that, right? I mean, we, we can't help but pursue some type of meaning and purpose in life. And um, we trip into God so easily and readily. I mean, if you read through Scripture, or you could read through secular history books, it all is the same story, right? They tell the same story. We just can't help but give our lives to something. And so I think this command actually is relevant to us. You shall not, or you shall have no other gods before me. God knows us, doesn't he? He knows us better than we know ourselves. <laughs> and, and we have to be consistently, constantly choosing who our God is if we're ever going to land on the idea of having him be our God, right? It's almost like we're ADHD about our gods, we, we, we're traveling along through the life and we're following God and all of a sudden we're just like, whoa, squirrel. Oh yeah, I was following him, right? I mean, we have those moments in life where we're, we just struggle at times to, to really pay attention. And, and I think we love to, pay, to make fun of the Israelites who seem to fail to follow God over and over and over and over again, right? Or if you think about other people in Scripture, like those silly Baal worshipers they tried to, who tried to take on the prophet Elijah, right? Remember them? Or even Jesus' disciples. They at times were a mess, weren't they? And especially those horrible, no-good teachers of the law and the Pharisees who were always attacking Jesus, always misunderstanding what Jesus was trying to say. I mean, there's all these people, they're so silly, aren't they? Why can't they follow God? But how far off are we really from them, honestly? We can so easily take something that is even good and, and make it our God, make, make it our purpose for life, right? What we make our life about. I mean, we just can grab a hold of just about anything, can't we? It reminds me of David Foster Wallace's commencement speech that he made in 2005 at a graduation ceremony for Kenyon College. 
And he made some keen observations. Let me just read a little bit of it to you. It says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if, if they are what you really tap real mean, in order to find real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, <laughs> you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of really every great story. The whole trick, though, is keeping the truth up front and daily consciousness. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into, day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see, how you measure value, without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Isn't that an interesting statement? From a guy that's not necessarily a Christian, just kind of processing through this, no such thing as atheism. <laughs> we will make something or someone into a God in our life. That's just the truth of the matter, right? Do you think that choosing what God you will serve is a relevant topic? <laughs> it is, right? Think, right? This is one of the most important life decisions that we can make. And we don't just make it once, what, right? We have to keep choosing it. It affects all of our decisions daily, moment by moment. We've got to choose who our God will be or else we end up off of this side of the road or that side of the road, right? Paul, Paul describes it this way. It's really interesting. In Romans 1, verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen in his creation, right? Being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts, they were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. I mean, doesn't that sound like it was written yesterday? 
really, really interesting. <laughs> Back to Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. And last week we talked about the fact that knowing, knowing how God is good and faithful is so important. We need that track record in our lives, right? That, that, that we can really trust him with our very lives so we can be assured that any command given to us from him, whether it's the first one or the next nine, right? Any commands that he gives us is not something that he does out of spite towards us or somehow that we're feeding his ego if we obey him, but it's because of his divine love and grace for us. He's given us these ways of life that are so much better than the ways that we're living. Why do we think this is possible? <laughs> because according to Exodus 20, I mean, we talked about it last week. When God asked them to do the command, he's already saved them from Egypt, right? He's already given them their, his grace. Well, for sure, they could trust this command, the commandments to follow were for their own benefit, coming from a loving and gracious God, right? I mean, it's as if God is saying, I don't want you to put any other gods before me. Let me be the first in your life. I've, I've set you free, so please don't go and enslave yourselves again to something or someone else. I'm the only good God. Please get this in your head. You need to follow me. It's in your best interest to follow me. It is by the mercy and grace of God that we were commanded to allow God to be God in our lives. This is a big deal. In fact, this is such a major, major hurdle in our lives that God, when he goes on to the second commandment, <laughs> he's just adding to this one, right? So we start into the second week of this series looking at the second commandment. It's really just a, a step in the progression. Um, look at uh, Exodus 20, beginning with verse 4, and you'll notice it's a little bit longer. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, <laughs> or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You see the logical progression of the commands so far? First, God says, have no other gods before me, then almost as a clarifying statement, right? You should not make an image of a God, right? Or in some translations, a graven image. And definitely don't bow down and worship it. What is this describing? It's describing idols, right? Now again, looking at the context of this passage, the Israelites would have been very familiar with idols. Carved out of wood, carved out of stone. Um, but I think we have an idea what an idol looks like. Even if we haven't seen one, it's in our imagination what these wood creatures look like, right? Again, it seems like every ancient people had some kind of representation for their gods in a physical form, right? As if they needed a god with a face on it, something that they, they were able to place in a, somewhere and they knew where that god was so they could go and, and talk to it, interact with it most often control it. I mean, if you make some sacrifices to it, you can actually appease it and it will serve you. I mean, that is what most of our human gods end up doing, right? Or at least we think they're doing. 
And oddly enough, probably the best example in the Bible of breaking this second commandment is shortly after this commandment is written in stone. I mean, that's kind of the odd part of the story for me. Um, before Moses even delivers, he's up on the mountain, he's receiving the Ten Commandments, and, and it's almost as if God is looking over Moses' shoulder, right? And he's looking down the mountain, and he says, yeah, it's that. That is what I don't want them doing, right? He could point to what they were doing. Skip ahead to Exodus 32, verse 1. It says, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. And this is the most incredible story, isn't it? And, and, and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him, right? First of all, who brought you up out of Egypt? It wasn't Moses, right? I mean, the error in idol worship it's giving credit to things that God should be receiving credit for, and we're giving that credit to something else, right? That's what idol worship's about. We're giving power, actually, to these false gods. Oh, it was that that did it, right? Instead of saying it was him that did it. Even a person can be an idol. Look at Moses. <laughs> Verses, verse 2, Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing. Bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him, made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I mean, what part of this is smart? I mean, <laughs> who brought them up out of Egypt? A golden calf? Did you just lose your minds, right? Verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. You catch that? Who's the festival to? To the Lord. These are some confused people, aren't they? They're intermixing everything. The stuff they got from Egypt, we'll take some of that, we'll take some of this. Do we ever do stuff like that? We'll mix in different religions and faiths and... Verse 6, so the next day the people rose early, sacrificed, burnt offerings, presented fellowship offerings, and similar things that they would do at the temple of God, right? Afterwards, they sat down and they ate and drank. They had a festival. They got up to indulge in revelry. I mean, do you see what they lost sight of? Who brought them up out of Egypt? Who were they giving credit for that, right? And why did Israel create at Sinai, a calf idol instead of an image of some other animal. Well, the truth is, <laughs> the likely reason is that a calf or a bull was among the most important of the Egyptian animal images that they would use in the Egyptian gods, right? They're just simply reverting back to what they knew in the Egyptian days. And so some scholars actually believe the Israelites were just doing their normal best to create a physical representation of the gods that they thought that they were following, right? Even building an altar and having a festival, similar practices, burning some offerings, just the wrong God. Is that such a big deal? Hey, just the practices, we're doing it just a little bit off. <laughs> and in turn, who are they giving the credit to? 
not to the God, but to something else, something that was created by them, right in front of them, right? I mean, do we ever give credit for the good things that happen in our lives to things other than the God? Think about this. This is a tricky question. (laughs) Do we ever struggle with what the Israelites were struggling with that day? Did God give them the benefit of the doubt even? I, I, I just kind of thinking through, you know, God could be looking down there saying, you know, that's so cute. They've built this nice gold calf. They think that's what I look like. <laughs> Isn't that cute? And they're worshiping it, they're worshiping it now. They're a little confused, but it's just a thought that counts. Verse 7, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, I mean, he's even mocking their message, right? That's so funny to me. Who you, you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Who's telling this story? God is. That's the scary part, right? God actually knows what's going on. He knows exactly what is going on. This is bigger than being confused, isn't it? I mean, how important is it to acknowledge who is working in our lives? How easy is it to not? Actually, would be a better question. God knows exactly what's going on. I mean, do we not think this is relevant today? That we don't give credit where credit is due? Some of the dumbest things we give credit to. I'm so, I'm so glad I wore my lucky socks today. Because I am having a great day. Isn't that a great thing to give praise to? How about karma? I must have done something to make the universe happy with me today. I'm having a great day. I mean, we throw credit into fortune cookies and good luck charms, getting up on the right side of the bed. Could that be a god? (laughs) Baseball superstitions. I'm obviously a baseball fan. I mean, turning your baseball cap inside out and putting it on your head, that's what we need to finally win this game. This rally cap thing. I mean, it's great fun, but when we win, do we actually say, well, it's because of the rally cap? Praise the Lord. And what exactly is an idol? It's more than a piece of wood, isn't it? Well, Tim Keller actually called idols counterfeit gods. And he says that they're anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Have any things like that in your lives? (laughs) 
I mean, me personally, I, as I think through this, I mean, it's something so central and essential that if I lost it, I would feel lost. If that's the definition of vital, I'm in trouble. I mean, put in the obvious, windy, or maybe my cell phone, right? Where would I be without my cell phone? Practical things, modern plumbing, running water, being able to go to the bathroom inside, right? Practical stuff. I know that's weird, but isn't that important? You could definitely put money in there. If we lost all of our money, could we, could we live? And how about my kids? Is God more important to me than, than them? And remember, why did the Israelites rush to build this idol? They were, they were frightened because Moses, we don't know where he went, right? So they were impatient, and they were frightened in their impatience, right? Frightened impatience caused them to start trusting in other things instead of God, right? Does fear or impatience in God ever cause you to turn to other things other than God? To solve your problems? Well, if God's not going to fix it, maybe I'll find a different way, right? And they felt like they needed something physical, something that they could see, something that they could touch. Andy Crouch even talks about how our addictions can become a type of idol. In his book, Playing God, Crouch says, in modern secular societies, perhaps the clearest example of idolatry is the pattern we call addiction. Addictions begin with essentially good created stuff. Even the chemicals that become addictive drugs are actually part of God's good creation, often have beneficial uses in the right context. But in the throes of addiction, we invest that created stuff with transcendent expectations. It begins to hold out the promise of becoming almost like a god. The most powerfully addictive substances like crystal meth are the ones that can deliver the most dramatic sensations of godlike freedom and confidence and abundance. In other words, power. A behavior like gambling promises to give us a sense of mastery over the random forces of nature. The ability to bring something out of nothing, to create wealth without having to work for it. Pornography promises intimacy without risk, without commitment, without limitations of our often awkward and vulnerable bodies. I mean, isn't that interesting to think about how our addictions and our trust in these whatever it is to get us through this or that, have, help us to have power over whatever situation we're in, coping mechanisms to maybe even just avoid life altogether. But idols can also be just something super simple like karma, doing something so the universe will be happy with you instead of to give glory to God. There's a lot of places to trip over here, isn't there? I mean, is this really relevant in our lives today? Idols? I mean, it's not like we have a popular show called American Idol or anything, right? What causes us to lean into these other things? Give life to these other things. We give them the power, right? 
Listen to Tony Reinke in his book, Competing Spectacles. He says, idols are dangerous when a worshiper, having lost patience in God, transfers his or her hope and joy into a deity represented by a handmade thing and Christ would awake and arise. And in this move, human anticipation and expectation animate the dead idol into a deceptive liar. If I can just only have this thing in my life, it's going to fix it. Little things become replacements for a seemingly far-off God the moment we implicitly expect our spectacles to arise and awaken and grant us the joy and security only to be found in the living God of the universe. Hmm. So an idol is something we create, something that we imagine might be able to help us, and it's something that we worship. It can be a person. It can be an object. It can be an intangible, like a career or a relationship status. It's hard because we live in a society that's just obsessed with idols. They're everywhere, right? It's easy to become far more obsessed with the latest hot celebrity than with God. But God says, no, don't do this. Put him first in your life. And you know when he tells us that? knowing that he's a good and faithful God, that he loves us, I don't think for a second that he's not telling us this for our own good. Do you? He knows that he is the only true solution to our problems, right? The minute you put God second is the minute you fall into the trap of crafting and worshiping an idol. What is going to take that place, right? And the crazy thing is that if we could see what we were doing, if we just had a clear shot, right, there's just no way we would be involved in idol worship if we really thought about it, right? Really trusting in our, our favorite lucky socks? I mean, do we really trust in those things? I mean, it's silly, right? The whole thing's crazy. We know that an idol doesn't give life. Only God can do that. And they're our, our own creation. They're dead. They're untrue. They're the work of our hands. We, we invent a God, and then we worship it. While the true God, the living God, the creator God, is waiting and watching and wanting our devotion. Not for his ego, but because he knows what's best for us. He's the only good God. And this is the situation Paul describes in Acts 17. He's walking around the city of Athens, and he's just observing all of these idols around him, right? The city is full of idols, and he's sad about it. And then later, when Paul has a chance to speak in the midst of the leaders of the city, Paul says some words that seem to echo this second commandment. Acts 17, verse 22, it says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. 
The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. (laughs) You see who Paul's giving credit to? Verse 27, God did this so that they they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. I mean, do you see what Paul is giving credit to for the workings of this world? It's God, right? It's not some unknown entity. That's some part of our life that we have created and given power to. It's the God, the creator, right? Verse 29, Paul continues, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn back to him. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. The man. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising this man from the dead. You know who this man is? What Paul is saying here is that God is known. And we have an assurance of that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We do not have to chase after idols. We follow the true God. We don't have to invent idols. We don't have to worship counterfeit gods, do we? The one true God who is alive has revealed himself to us in Christ. And focusing on Jesus is the antidote to idolatry. Now, it would be easy to throw stones of judgment on the Israelites, right? For their sin of idolatry in the face of God's glory. I mean, they're at the mountain. They see the the fire. I mean, how could they not see what was going on, right? But we, too, often are just as guilty as they are. Many of us have professed Christ as Lord and Savior, believing that he is the only... Son of God who died for us and rose from the grave on the third day. I mean, we have seen his wonder-working power in our lives, in our friends' lives, right? And he has pulled us out of more catastrophes and problems that we can even remember. What have we done in the face of this glory and grace? We just simply forget. We don't remember. We've forgotten him, just like the people in the past in Exodus. We, we forget at least it's until the next time we need to call on him for help, right? So this morning, people of God, do you see your need for this command in your lives? <laughs> All we have to do is remember. Just a little thing, right? Remember. We already know him. In fact, we have, <laughs> we have an access to God the Father that these people at that mountain had no idea it was possible through Christ, right? They, at the time of the Ten Commandments, they had no idea that we, every one of us, could go up that mountain to be in the very presence of God. 
And for those who have never had that kind of relationship with God, I would just love to meet with you. Love to pray with you. He's only a conversation away. He wants to be a part of your life. But don't miss this last part of the second command. This command actually comes with a threat and a promise. Look at Exodus 20, verse 5 again. It says, You shall not bow to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. I mean, that seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? That's hard. (laughs) But God is actually trying to come into a covenant with these people. He wants to be their God. He's not... He's not wanting to punish them. And this mention of this, their behavior affecting the third and fourth generations, you know, in those days, they actually lived in households with three or four generations. So under one roof, they would have three or four generations. So parents, grandparents, <laughs> when you choose to follow idols, when you have the rest of the generations there, you're causing your, your kids to stumble right? Your grandkids to stumble. You're punishing them by by not showing them the way of the Lord. But don't forget to to look at the blessing in verse 6. But showing love to a thousand generations, those who love me and keep my commandments. I mean, if they were only willing to offer their loyalty to me, to worship me, the true God. I mean, look at the promise, the blessing the extravagant love of God that, that would extend not just to the household, not just the three or four generations, but the thousands of generations. All because you chose to follow the Lord today. The Hebrew word here is translated for, for love. It actually could be translated loving kindness, steadfast love. It's, it's again referring to this covenant faithfulness entering into this relationship with God who who wants to be faithful to us. He is faithful. He is good. If we will just respond with some loyalty. A great example of this type of love is the love that God had for the descendants of Abraham, right? Abraham had faith in God, and he blessed, God blessed his, his descendants and their descendants and generations upon generations and the people that are being blessed at that mountain in that moment was because Abraham had one day decided to follow the Lord, right? And it blessed thousands of generations. I mean, isn't it important not only to us, but the future generations to give our focus to the creator of the universe instead of some false god? To give God credit, to remember to go to him when we need help, to not allow idols to creep in unknowingly into our lives. I mean, God is so good. He's so faithful. He's so trustworthy. He's so loving. And he desires to bless us. But not only us, but thousands of generations. If we will only moment by moment trust in him as our God. Amen? Will you pray with me? Lord God, I just thank you that you are good. 
that you love us, that you care about us, that you're interested in our well-being. Lord, we so easily get tripped up along the way. And you know that about us. <laughs> Lord, would you just help us? Because we do desire to follow you. We know that it's dumb <laughs> to follow these man-made idols. Would you help us, Lord, to remember you? Put you first in our life? To make you the most important part of our lives? Be our God. And Lord God, we know that that is in our best interest. We trust you with our very lives. So Lord, would you just, again, lead us, guide us, give us guidance and wisdom, give us strength through your spirit to follow you. And Lord, we will give you all the praise. Help us to remember you and give you credit for all the great things that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we close our service this morning? I have a benediction passage just a little bit longer than the normal one, so hang in there with me. But I think you'll understand why I picked this one. Isaiah chapter 44, beginning with verse 6, says, This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. You see who he is? I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people. And what is yet to come? Yes, let them foretell what will come. <laughs> do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I, did, I, did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No. There is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They're ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He, he shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water. He grows faint. He's just a human being, right? The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it into human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is used as fuel for burning. <laughs> Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. So half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over, over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Oh, I'm warm. I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. 
He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, save me. You are my God. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I use for fuel. I even bake bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what's left? <laughs> Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Remember these things, Jacob. Remember these things, Emmet Nazarene Church. <laughs> For you, Israel, are my servant. I've made you. You're my servant. Israel, I will not forget you. I've swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, you heavens, for the Lord God has done this. Shout aloud, you earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, your forests and all your trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. People of God, we serve an amazing, loving, great, rescuing God. So this week, will you scour your life, see if there might be some things that you're giving too much credit to? Things that you shouldn't be trusting in? And with the help of God, will you instead put your trust in him, where it belongs. <laughs> Giving thanks to God for all the great things that he's done. Will you take a few moments this week to think about all the great things that he has done <laughs> and give him credit for he is the great God. Amen? And don't be afraid to do this together as a family. How important is that? Together remember all the great things God has done and give him praise, give him thanks, teaching the next generations to do the same. Amen? May God work in your hearts as you trust in him. You are sent.